welcome to episode 47 of Expertise is Overrated, a podcast that takes the time to answer the questions you didn't know you didn't want the answer to. I'm Sean. And I'm Vib. And neither of us has any clue what we're talking about. Uh, now, before we move on, we do actually have, potentially, some tinfoil to award. We need a tinfoil alert, I think. Like a really awful klaxon or something. Yeah, yeah no way that gets old. <laughs> Well, exactly. I sort of agree, though. I, 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 we actually originally, before we even started our recording of episode one, we discussed this at some point, didn't we? Oh, we did, and we didn't do it because we thought it would be awful. Yes. Okay, so that's not our tinfoil claxon. But, <laughs> but we, do, we do have four potential tinfoil options. We do. I mean, the last episode was clearly a very fruitful round for nonsense. So what I think we're going to ask the listeners to do... Am I right? We're going to say, get in touch with us, whether by email, Twitter, or on our Discord, with what, which of the following four items you think is the most tinfoil-worthy, and, and we'll award that tinfoil. Yeah, so as a reminder, tinfoil is, is you know, the award that we both get, or one of us gets, rather, for yeah. the, the silliest thing that was said in the previous episode. Um. And what's unusual, I think, about today's selection is that we're actually sort of equally split in terms of stupid things we said. It's very unusual. Yeah, usually Gen- you, you say vastly um, sillier crap than I do. Well, I was going to say, generally, the tinfoil item is a standout example of idiocy from a single individual rather than the sort of smattering across the entire episode that we have in front of us today. So, do you, do you want to kick us off? What did I say? So, you came out with two things that I thought were quite egregious. Um, the first being that you said, Book Aragorn is a dickhead, and, and you backed it up by saying you actually stand by it. Yeah, no, that is, that's a true statement. Yeah, so Book Aragorn is a dickhead. Um, and then somehow you tried to outdo yourself by saying, Sam is just Hobbit Gandalf. I did. This is written down in front of me, and I'm not 100% sure what I meant. Well, like... There's hope for you, clearly. Um, it, this was all around character arcs, wasn't it? And and that's the fact that Sam and Gandalf don't. Well, you know what? The, the time to defend yourself is over. Yeah, no. <laughs> I've 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 let the, the ship sail on that one. But worry not, for you have some contenders of your own. No, I think that was it. Let's move on today. No, so so your first moment of greatness was when you suggested that the eponymous hero of the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter, is not in fact the hero of the Harry Potter series. Now, if you're wondering if I said the word Harry Potter too many times in that sentence, I did. It got away from me slightly. Now, in my, in my defence, I think there's a reason that, that she always has to say Harry Potter and the, because otherwise you might forget that he's actually in the story. Uh, unlikely, given that you spend the entire series inside Harry's head, but never mind. Yeah. Then on, I'm going to wager outdid yourself by suggesting that the Millennium Falcon is the hero of the Star Wars saga. Now, I'm guessing you don't mean the entire Skywalker saga, all nine films, because the Millennium Falcon isn't in all nine films, nor is it even relevant um... for three. I mean, I, but, I challenge anyone to to defy me on this. Um, this kind of please, please, 
Please, someone write in and defy him. He's unbearable. Please don't. Uh, yeah, I know, because I, I feel like I should have to justify it for all nine films. Um, which means I may have to drag in Solo yeah. somehow. But that, again, your opportunity to make your case was in the last episode. No, quite. I can't defend Sam as a Hobbit Gandalf. You can't defend the Millennium Falcon as the hero of Star Wars. So with those four in front of us, I think we should just move on. Uh, yeah, unless you have any more defense to raise. Well, what's funny is that we, we only sort of recently got rid of... Um, Episode, episodic tinfoil. We did. Uh, we did. Because we were sort of being too serious. You know, we were too, I don't know, intelligent almost, which I know is <laughs> outrageous. That feels untrue. Um, but here we, we've got four pretty good ones, I think. I think so. So let, let us know and we'll, we'll announce it. I don't know, next time. In time for the next episode after this one dropping. Uh, it's really quite abstract, really. It's, time as a concept indeed now today it's gonna to be a very unusual style for us in in some ways i think because i feel this is going to turn into a sort of interview uh which listeners are excited for i'm gonna be interviewing you sean of course because there's no one oh um, <laughs> so yeah i hope you've dressed for the occasion um, this is a test i will be grading um oh, that's this has got much less exciting <laughs> No, but in, in, in true sense, um, you know, true to our own style, we're about probably two months, if not more, late with this particular episode, because I wanted to talk about the open gaming license from Wizards of the Coast. Okay, so I, I think it's worth dwelling for a second on the fact that we're, I think by the time this episode drops, we're six months late for for the OGL crisis, as we've called it. That was a deliberate decision on our part, and I think it's worth just mentioning that quickly. Uh, there were a lot of people wading in at the time, myself included, in fact, which I think I suspect we'll come on to. And we didn't want to throw our oars in, essentially, when we didn't have anything valuable to say. And, and I thought that what I had was valuable to say, but it was made public in a different forum. Uh, and, and I didn't really want to tarnish, I don't think you did either, I want to tarnish the podcast with the mudslinging that was going on at the time. Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I agree. I, I agree. But equally, we have um, quite recently, at the time of recording, released an episode that, that covers equal, uh, you know, equally dirty that's, topics of a sort that, that we also have no true. real grounding from you know from which to argue uh but but i agree i feel this this was very different because uh, i don't want to say i i, I didn't really uh, what's the best way of putting it it's not that i didn't care but it was it was so irrelevant to me and i was so uneducated on the matter that i i didn't even want to start so i think i think that's exactly right i think there were a lot of people wading in on, on the proposed changes, and I guess we can talk about those if you want in in a few minutes, who just were not going to be affected by them, but everyone took a position and took an opinion based on no facts, not having read the relevant documents, not understanding the law that was underpinning them, in my opinion. And so the discourse around it was just unbearably toxic, and that's actually why I stepped in. And wanted and wrote the article that I wrote, which I think is the 
the, almost the trigger for this episode. Well, one of the one of two triggers for for this episode, because there was just no intelligent debate. It was just mudslinging and screeching. Now, the other thorny topic that we've covered recently, uh, Hogwarts Legacy, it was almost, in a way, easier because I'm not saying well, there is a right and a wrong side of that. And so what, what we were able to do was position ourselves on what we considered to be the morally correct side of that debate and then discuss it. Whereas it's, I don't really want to discuss the morality of copyright law. Although I suppose we probably need to. But that's almost where we were getting to in places. Yes, uh, I'm I'm tempted to agree on that. Um, I feel in the interest of listening, it, it may be good for us to, to row back just a, a yeah. little bit. So what are we talking about? So the Open Gaming License was a piece of legislation, as far as I understand it. Some contract. Contract. Uh, le- legislate legislation to pass by countries. Yes, that's a fair point. This is where I'm going to out myself as the world's worst lawyer. Because um, I'm not one. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a document yes. that was released by Wizards of the Coast. Yes. Either owned by Hasbro, because that's a name that was flung around as yes. well. And these are the people who publish uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Amongst, obviously, other things and, and other products that they may have. So, so this, this seems to be very specifically targeted at Dungeons so and Dragons, right? That's absolutely right. Wizards of the Coast make two main products, uh, and I'll probably call them IPs going forward, which is going to get confusing, but that's how they're referred to sort of in the community. So the first of these is absolutely Dungeons and Dragons, which is a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, I am almost certain that everyone listening to this podcast has at least heard of Dungeons and Dragons, which is a point that I think we'll come on to later. The other product that Wizards of the Coast make is Magic the Gathering, which is a tabletop card, tabletop collectible card game, which I suspect far fewer people have heard of. Now, interestingly, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but Magic the Gathering accounts for something like 70% of Wizards of the Coast's revenue. Despite being... Which, which makes sense purely from a from a mechanistic Absolutely. point of view. Right? It's a card-collecting game, so there's a lot more things for them to sell. Yes. As much as they try to sell the player handbook for, for their various D&D editions in any shape and form, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think you can compete with cards. Yes, no, you, you sell... Uh, Magic the Gathering sells booster packs at like twenty dollars a pack. That's got nine cards in it or something. It's five thousand dollars or or for a thousand dollars. Yes, that was very funny. Um, and so so the, yeah, that that's who was it for coast? Are oh, they they make Dungeons and Dragons? They make Magic the Gathering. We're going to talk, uh, I, I think, almost exclusively about Wizards of the Coast rather than Hasbro. Wizards of the Coast are owned by Hasbro, but it's run as an entirely separate business division. Yeah. And as I understand it, Magic and D&D are run as separate divisions within Wizards of the Coast. So they're, they're, they don't cross-subsidize, for example. That would make sense, yeah. Yeah, so that, that I think that's framed what we're talking about. Yes. Um, so... Tell me a bit about so so this this OGL as people yeah. call it. What what actually is that document? So this is where things get very confusing. The Open Gaming License is a bit of paper that Wizards of the Coast put out that says 
it, you can use our intellectual property, specifically our copy of the copyright in the game mechanics that we've published in this document and as an appended document to the Open Gaming License, uh, however you want. You can make games, you can create worlds, adventures, rules, supplements, or whatever you like, as, as often as you want, and, and we don't get any money in return. No. That's true, and it remains true now, because the Open Gaming License has been retained. What Wizards of the Coast tried to do, essentially, was limit that. And I don't want to go into the technicalities of exactly how they did that. I wrote an article on this, which has since been taken down because Wizards rode back on their position, essentially, and, and uh, made basically no changes at all to the Open Gaming Licence in the end after the, the fan outcry. But I will make the article available on our Discord for anyone who wants to read it. Uh, I, I will not make it available elsewhere on the internet because it no longer adds to the, the conversation. No, it doesn't. It was it was remarkable timing, really. You you wrote it, um, and um, someone very kindly hosted it on their yes. website. It was hosted by the Angry GM, for, to whom I, I remain grateful for hosting it, uh, even though it got yeah, sure, the Angry GM. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, obviously, it was your combination that ultimately mm. undid OGL one point two. It was two days later they they reversed all their changes, so I, I yeah, can they, only assume. They, they saw Oxford-educated magic circle trained practicing lawyer, and they were like, oh, fuck. The game's real now, boys. <laughs> oh, God. That's, that's real. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was slightly tongue-in-cheek when providing my credentials. But the, the, the big, the, the, there were a few big changes in, in 1.2, so that was the proposed new. Before we, before we move on to that, I, I would also challenge people to, A, read uh, the article. It's it, it rather good. Uh, and, B, challenge people to find the... We say Easter egg in it. Do you by that mean the typo? Uh, the, the singular typo, sure. Yeah, there's... that's not what I mean. But uh, yeah, tell us what you think the Easter egg is. <laughs> You're going to need to tell me what the Easter egg is afterwards. Wow, okay. You were so proud of it at the time. Oh, yes, I know. There we go. Uh, is that bit still in? It is still in. Okay, yeah. No, that, that, that bit I, I was very proud of. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Yes, go and read the article because I'm not going to rehash it entirely here. Uh, there, the article is essentially assumed knowledge for the rest of this podcast. Um, sorry. Oh, good. More homework from Sean. This is becoming a, a regular it's thing. It's great, isn't it? Uh, I, I do kind of like it, yeah. <laughs> so, OGL 1.2, which was the proposed redraft, purported to do a number of things. First and foremost, it purported to require people making more than $750,000 of gross revenue per year off OGL content to pay Wizards a profit share, essentially. And the numbers that were thrown around were something like 25% of gross revenue above 750k. Which is big. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that is a lot of money. Uh, it's um, uh, probably about £750,000 more than we make. I think it's about 750 and about, about yeah, £100 a, a pounds <laughs> more than <laughs> yeah. we make. 
yes. <laughs> but also, and for a lot of people more concerningly, there was also a number of provisions that gave Wizards of the Coast control and rights in whatever content you create using the OGL and the right to require you to take down content that they deemed to be essentially hateful or against the brand values of Dungeons and Dragons. Lots of people were very, very unhappy with this. The community threw a massive hissy fit, which I personally think was over the top. Uh, I, I professionally find the OGL and its existence completely baffling, but I have been told that that makes me a morally reprehensible person, so there we are. And yeah, so, so so yeah, let's let's just touch on that very briefly, right? Sure. So that there are because I think that's an important consideration that a lot of people always forget, and this feeds into your homework from episode forty four on Hogwarts Legacy, <laughs> um, that that dictates that people just stop for a second and entertain the other side, um, effectively. Um, in in this case, it's to 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 try and view your personal emotional response. From the sort of capitalist competitive yes. market, you know, um, real world arguments, uh, and and I think this was not that I followed the debate in, in immense depth, but I feel those things were just completely ignored. Um, this was purely viewed as a so how can you do this to us um, style thing, forgetting that you know Wizards of the Coast are a for profit company, mm-hmm. and it's not the only time that that's happened, and, and I'm sure we'll come back. No, it's. it's but I think the article that you wrote, I believe it's fair to say, was was purely from a sort of legal slash corporate perspective. So that's absolutely right. I I specifically in the article said I do not propose to deal with the morality of copyright law. Uh, yeah, that's a much bigger question in a lot. Of and ways. it's a question on which I don't feel competent to to discuss. Uh, I do feel competent to discuss IP law. I do feel competent to discuss corporate strategy and sort of commercial obligations that companies owe to their shareholders, because that's what I do for, for a living. Yeah, this is actually terrible. Like, where expertise is overrated, not expertise is what you need. No, it's right, and we're going to end up in places where I have absolutely no expertise at all, because we need, we're going to get onto the tabletop role-playing game market and the position of D&D within that, and I have no idea about that, but I propose to wax lyrical about it for half an hour. Oh, fantastic, good. Don't worry. <laughs> but so yeah so you approached it saying yes. effectively in a nutshell you sort of said what they are proposing kind of makes sense Still, um yeah, view, and, and as you said the original ogl was kind of nuts it was entirely insane and i think the thing that got missed in all of the discussion was that the original ogl almost exclusively gave rise to Dungeons & Dragons' biggest competitor in the tabletop role-playing game market. Now, their biggest competitor is a company called Paizo, who make Pathfinder and Pathfinder 2nd Edition, which I'd wager as a game potentially 20% of our listeners have heard of, rather than the 100% I suspect have heard of Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, wow, you think it's only 1 in 5? Well, no, we got a big influx for Angry Server. It might be more like one in three at the moment. Yeah, but I, I feel as a, a relatively recent 
um, entrance into tabletop RPGs, uh, even before I started playing any of them, I, I knew what D&D was. Exactly. Fairly well, even. Um, whereas Pathfinder is only something that, that in recent years I've sort of come across and never played. No, it's and complicated, but... I think that distinction is really, really important, and it's one, again, there's a whole question around D&D as a metonym for tabletop role-playing games, which I think mm. is probably where we're, where we're going to spend the majority of this episode. But Pinezo's existence, Pathfinder's existence, is entirely down to OGL 1.0a, which was the one, which is the open gaming license that Wizards was purporting to revoke when they produced the second draft OGL uh, 1.2. So by publishing the OGL and the system reference document, which is the rules that sat behind the OGL that you were allowed to use, Paizo made their own version of D&D, became D&D's biggest competitor, and paid D&D not a penny for the privilege. That's insane. That's, that's negligent if you're a shareholder of, of Wizards of the Coast. Or indeed Which Hasbro. is an important point, obviously. Or um, indeed Hasbro. If I discovered that that had happened, I'd be, I'd be firing, if I was a CEO or on the board of, of Wizards of the Coast, I'd be firing CEOs if I found out about that. It's outrageous. And I don't understand. Well, no, I do understand. When I was writing the article, I don't believe that point was fully understood by the community. Yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it? I feel, yeah, I don't know why that wasn't really stressed so much because it's a bit like if someone took Age of Empires two and just slightly recolored it and added a few units and then just re-released it as their own game and gave uh, Microsoft none of the profit. Do, do you know uh, that's that's true? I think there's a almost a better example. It's if twenty years ago, Coke published their recipe and a company called pepsi went oh we can do that but make it slightly different and then started making pepsi that, yeah that's the equivalent i mean I that think. is sort of what happened isn't it that is yes i um, think Coke and pepsi sued each other for many, many yeah many. yes okay so but no but that's ultimately the point right is that they managed to sue i think coke sued pepsi for probably the name ultimately probably um, because it's Pepsi Cola. It's because it was protected IP, right? The, the, yes. Do so, which, which leads me to an, to an interesting question, actually, which is, had Wizards, Wizards of the Coast, that's a horrible thing to say to me, Wizards of the Coast, had they not published any OGL, would Pathfinder be in existence today, or would they be in a position where they could le uh, legitimately sue? That was fairly English as well. So if, if we assume that nothing changes... Pathfinder is published, but there is no OGL. Yes. Could could Watsi sue Paizo? I don't know. And this this is the other point that, that is made in the article. This is my job, and I don't know. Yeah. So anyone who is speaking with authority on what could or could not have happened, what is or is not copyrightable, was frankly blown smoke out of their arse. I'm sorry, you just were, if that was you. You don't, uh, unless you have been before a judge and they have given you a ruling on this question, you just don't know. You can never know because IP law is always subject to the interpretation of a court. 
yeah. what I just yeah what I do know is is sort of two things one there is an oft repeated maxim that game mechanics are not copyrightable so press space to jump for example that's not copyright copyrightable however the expression of game mechanics in a rule book is copyrightable. So if you press space jump, not copyrightable. As a concept, if you were to write a video game manual that had a specific way of describing press space to jump, press the space bar and your hero will leap into the air, uh, defying gravity. Yes. <laughs> ten, ten foot into the air to find gravity. Someone else comes along and writes those exact words in their game manual. That's copyright infringement. Probably. At the end of the day, you'd still have to go before a judge and get a judge to, to show that it was... Or agree no, of course, these things are incredibly, incredibly nuanced. This is all incredibly nuanced, and people spend millions and millions of dollars fighting over copyright yeah. infringement. But the point is that Wizards of the Coast somehow preempted this by releasing an OGL that said, you know yes. what, do with it what you want. <laughs> so so what the OGL did was it provided a set of tram lines. Stay within these tram lines, use this content, don't use that content, and we will not sue you. And if yeah. you do, you have a piece of paper that we've signed that you can point to that says it was okay. That's what the OGL was. It gave certainty to people like Pathfinder, people like Paizo, uh, and other people. So MCDM, it gave certainty to Cobalt Press, it gave certainty to. And Watsi were purporting to withdraw some of that certainty. Not all of it, but some of it. And that's what people were unhappy with. And also take a profit share from the top 20 companies who were using yeah. their IP for free. Yeah, so, so I mean, from a from a corporate point of view, what they did once upon a time was kind of baffling, and a change in that document sort of makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. and there was a lot of technical debate about whether or not changes were pop were possible. Sorry, or how those changes could be possible. But again, this was done to death on Reddit, on YouTube, in articles, on blogs, including an article that I wrote. So I don't think we need to really get into the nitty-gritty of how such a change could be affected or whether it could be affected. But I think it was, the point to make is it was so poorly received by the community and the community successfully showed how poorly received it was by cancelling D&D Beyond subscriptions and things like that. The Watsi rode back completely, published a new OGL that basically is the same OGL shoved a load of stuff under a Creative Commons license, which is allegedly irrevocable, although I maintain that no, none of those licenses are actually irrevocable the way people think they are. And we've the world has moved on. Yeah. It's, it's a phenomenal show of force in some way, the power of the community. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think the way that the community behaved was not edifying. I don't think many people covered themselves in glory. I think it does phenomenally show the power of collective action and organized consumers. I think that's absolutely what it shows. And ultimately the power of social media, because there's no way that this would have gained so much traction so quickly. Yeah. Re Reddit and YouTube. 
this, that's where this fight was had. Yeah, completely, completely sank <laughs> this whole this whole thing. Yeah. Um, and so, so what, yeah, so you mentioned YouTube. That's actually a really interesting one because in my head, for example, this this is where this debate came somewhat not not relevant but interesting. I think to me particularly because I've often wondered about YouTube and, and sort of the content that I consume on YouTube. Uh, which is, amongst other things, for example, um, people playing D&D and making campaigns uh, on D&D yeah. and releasing that. And quite often, these people tend to be quite successful. I mean, there's some huge um, D&D creators on on YouTube and Twitch and whatnot. Um, and and I often wondered, like, hmm, how, how does that actually work with modern copyright law? Because these people's entire income is derived from a protected property yeah and it's 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 always baffled me and i and i'm grateful that that this exists because you know it's content that consumers i say so I, i'd rather have it such that this this works but i've always found it quite an intriguing concept how people can make careers off of uh, other people's copyright or people who play games video games or whatnot uh, or even people who react to things that other people have made you see a lot of that on youtube and it's not just the people who make that content who who make a living off of it. It's YouTube itself that gets yeah. a shit ton of money off of the back of, of the ad revenue. And it, it's 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 a really complicated issue. I'm not I'm not even going to pretend that I have any kind of answer or sensible opinion on this. But I've always just found it really quite interesting that that works and how that works. I, I completely agree. So taking people playing D and D to Twitch or YouTube. As the first example, obviously the biggest instance of this, as far as I know, is Critical Role, which is Matt Mercer and a bunch of voice actors pretending to play D and D while actually putting on a carefully choreographed performance of Just people playing D and D. I have I have nothing but respect for Critical Role. I have nothing but respect nothing but respect for Matt Mercer. I think he's a phenomenal runner of a table. I, I know. don't. I don't. I wish, I wish, I wish my GM was like, <laughs> yeah, good. I I would love to be anywhere near as good a GM as Matt Mercer is. I wish my GM would actually organize a game. Yeah, that's true. I'd like I'd like to be able to make so much money off my D and D that I can pay someone to organize a game for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, for those of you who don't know, Sean is my GM. Well, I think at the moment I'm I'm. I used to be your GM. He was GM. No, it's true. Uh, but no, so let's all shout him on Discord to actually get himself organised again. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, there, there is such a thing as the D and as the Dungeons and Dragons fan content policy, which sets out exactly what you can and can't do uh, in in that space. And the short answer is, don't read out the rule books, and you're probably fine. Because what you're, the work that you're doing is is pretty transformative. You're taking the rules and applying them to the game. It's yeah. sort of the same as playing a board game. That, that's interesting though, because quite often in D and D, by the very nature of, of of its gargantuan nature, is that you quite often end up reading rules out to each other, right? So to be like, yes. I interpret it this way, and then someone goes, "No, I interpret it this way," and then the GM goes, "Well, I'll say it's this." I'll say it's that. Exactly. That's that's right. But that's not the point of the video. Which I think no, that's true, yeah. They if someone were sitting, reading out the player's handbook to camera, that's just copyright infringement. Uh, yeah, of course. The, there's another point to make, and that, this comes to, towards things like React videos. 
that a lot of things just probably are copyright infringement and no one cares. That, I think, is a really, really good point. YouTube has always struck me as kind of odd in that sense, because when it comes to music, fucking hell, (laughs) they are militant. Um, Any sort of copyrighted music, you can obviously find things that are copyright-free, as people keep calling it. Yeah. But they're really strong on that. Whereas Twitch, for example, aren't, and in ways that I don't understand. But there's often a lot of stuff when, when someone's streamed on Twitch and then moved the VOD across to YouTube, they'll have to edit out the music that was playing. Mm-hmm. Really baffling. Um, clearly, there's different policies at, at Amazon and Google about this sort of thing, and, yeah. uh, and I don't know why. But one example... Well, yeah, another one that I never never have really understood, although I guess this is a monetization thing, are, are things like modding a game. And again, things that I love. Um, it's it's meant infinite replayability of something like The Elder Scrolls Skyrim. You just stick in a mod that someone has made, and off you go. It's a new experience. Yeah. Now, these guys don't get any money off of doing that, usually. And so again, it's, to me, it's always struck me as a sort of the game creator doesn't care. Or what is maybe even more the point is they find it a fruitful addition to the game. And as long as no money is made, they're like, yeah, please, <laughs> keep doing it. So I think I'm right in saying that the Total War Warhammer series actually has a modding policy that modders of the game, if they want to be hosted on the Steam Workshop at least, have to adhere to. And one of those requirements is that your mods cannot be gated behind a paywall, which includes things like mod releases for Patreon, if I remember correctly. This was a problem at one point, I think. Not the person who does Grimhammer, but someone like a mod of that stature, maybe stature, maybe Radius? Yeah. Used to gate early early access to mod updates behind a Patreon tier paywall. And they were told that that was considered a breach of the fair use policy that Creative Assembly had put out. I think I may be getting every single aspect of that wrong. But No, that rings a fair down. I think it also, I also want to say it was Radius, but don't quote either one of us on that. No, and yeah, if, if it wasn't Radius, I'm sorry to, to Radius, you know, but there, there was someone who was doing that. Uh, and so the problem wasn't that they had a Patreon. That was fine. The problem was that things were only available to people or only available for a limited time to people who were contributing to that Patreon. So I think the point then is exactly what you said about monetization. It's fine. Companies are okay with you using their IP to create bolt-on content, provided you are not making money off it and you are not costing them money, which I think brings us on to Warhammer Plus. Ah, yes. The shall we call it, successful implementation of OGL 1.2. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sort of, it sort of was, because you know what they didn't do? Consult. One. <laughs> one, they didn't produce OGL 1. 
and two, they didn't consult on it. They just said, here's how it is. Yeah, it, yeah. And from a corporate point of view, again, putting that hat on, that clearly is the way to do it. <laughs> yes. They, they just implemented it, and there was outrage. Yeah. Still is outrage to this day. Sort of, but not really. Most people have well, gone over like it because the internet think. has a really short memory. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Is that, that great, that girl who's like posting a video every single day until they, it, just a video of her doing a salute because she's like saluting a YouTube series that got taken down. Have you seen this? That vaguely rings a bell. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it. So there's a, there's a, I say girl, there's a woman who has posted a video every single day since an animated series on YouTube called If the Emperor Had a Text-to-Speech Device got taken down uh, as a result of the Warhammer Plus fan content policy being released. And so she's released a, a video every single day saluting text-to-speech device until it comes back. And that was like two years ago. And I think she's still doing it. And that's I mean, that's, that's kind of heroic. You kind yeah, of really just respect that. That is but, heroic. It's one of those protests that, yeah. I mean, I, I, I get a feeling that Games Workshop are now so far into this that they're, they're not going to reverse that. They haven't looked back, really. No, absolutely not. They just they, came out and said, we've discovered that a lot of people are sort of infringing on our copyright, so no more of that. <laughs> we, they, they, they were quite clever. They said, we've, we've previously been okay with this. Uh, or no, we've never been okay with it, but we've previously not taken action. We're now in a position where we can take action. And so from now on, we are giving you notice that we will. We're not going to do anything about historical stuff, but from now on, we will take action. Which I think yeah. was very smart. Yeah. And, and also very fair. Yeah. I, I, to me, where, where I think the whole Warhammer Plus concept genuinely went wrong is what I what I was sort of seen recently is that someone unsubscribed because they, they, they sort of they, they sort of started recruiting really good creators into the Warhammer Plus fold yeah uh, people who were previously just making content on their platform of choice uh, and then putting it behind a paywall because you know they wanted to make money off of it fair enough from a corporate point of view I get that but what they seemingly started doing is just a Warhammer Plus has released barely anything. <laughs> I think that's that's a huge criticism of it. Is there's just no content there, as far as I understand it. Exactly, people are paying quite a lot of money because it's Games Workshop, so it's a lot of money, but not much, and certainly seemingly far less than what was promised. Yes. And what's worse now is that I I feel that they're no longer actually giving due credit to the people who are making the content. Uh, so it's it's all just sort of amorphous Games Workshop Warhammer Plus creators be damned so i think i think they've gone way too far <laughs> like you should still credit the creative people like it'd be like me creating a, like making a, a movie and crediting nobody at the end yeah <laughs> no. fun thing right no absolutely if, if people work they they deserve credit for their work i i mean they're being paid though right so so you could you could make the yeah. argument that they're cr being credited by receiving money but 
you know, I don't, I, I don't disagree with them. I think if you, if you do work and you're in an industry where you should be credited for that work, then you should be credited for that work. Yeah. No, it's 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 all incredibly fascinating. So to come back to to like people who stream video games, for example, it's always a really interesting argument, right? Because because right, quite often now you get situations where um, video game producers have content creation teams who who are in touch with people who make content in yes. in their the game and whatnot. And there's often things like early access for people to make content and so on. So there's like all events. Um, so it's really interesting how, how how that works. It seems to be kind of a symbiotic relationship at the moment where the company gives them their thing for free. Those people then use it to make their own income. And clearly that is enough hype building or whatnot to convince people to buy the game or whatnot. And clearly, it's clearly a profitable endeavor because I, I, I don't see companies doing it otherwise. It's free advertising, fundamentally. Yeah. That's, but that's... there is technically nothing stopping a company from just saying, you know, hang on a minute. We could be making more money, right? Because we could be taking a cut of whatever content you're making. And, and, and the argument then becomes, as you alluded to earlier, like at what point are you creating something unique that just has a sort of underlying base of what the game is, for example, but you're, you're, you're a content creator, right? You don't just sit there in silence and play the game. So, so I, I'm, sorry, I interrupted you, go on. No, that was it. No, is it, I've, had, I've actually had this conversation with a streamer, uh, with, with Lionheart, who we've had on our podcast before, about the need for commentary and things like that. Now, his yeah. point, which I think is, is, is entirely fair, is there is no market on YouTube or on Twitch for commentary-less yeah. content. Everyone wants streamers. Face cams get you more views. All of this stuff. People don't just want to watch the game. They want to watch someone playing the game, and that personal interaction is really valuable. However, I also think, from a legal point of view, you're exactly right. If I were to just put a video of my screen as I play God of War, say, on up on Twitch, and I'm not talking, you can't see my face, and there is no interaction between me and the viewers, I think that leans closer to copyright infringement. Yeah. Now, again, will anyone do anything about it? No, because you're going to make no money on that stream because, as you say, no one's going to watch that. But the fact that people wouldn't take me to court for that doesn't mean it's not copyright infringement. I think that's an yeah. important distinction to make. It's it's a really tricky area. I'm glad to hear that you find it a tricky area as well, given that this is much more yeah. area of expertise than, than anyone else's. So I, I I'm quite fortunate in that most of the IP that I deal with, some of it is copyright, but most of it is trademarks. And trademarks are really easy because yeah. they're, registr they're registered. So you go onto the, the, the IP office, the intellectual property office of whichever jurisdiction you think someone's infringing your trademark, you check that your trademark is registered, and then you send a letter to the person who's using your trademark going, um, stop that. It's that simple. Yeah. And here, here's our registration from the intellectual property office telling you to stop that. It's really yeah. simple. Copyright is so much more complicated. Yeah. So, so, so in your opinion, then, do you think that there's maybe the need to have 
some form of contract, for example, between content creators and, and the companies whose games they're using to create their content. So either side, essentially, because what you don't want is is like the entirety of YouTube's video game content creation site to be absolutely sideswiped by the games and be like, yeah, this is over now. I think it's nobody wins. <laughs> I think it depends. I think there's a few ways that you could do it. One is exactly as you say, you could have individual contracts or OGL equivalents between content creators and game devs. I don't think that's necessarily practical unless you are a dedicated streamer, so someone who only plays Call of Duty Battle Zone Warframe or whatever it's called. And that's, that's, the, that's the one, yeah, I got close. Uh, if that's if that's your entire livelihood, you have no transferable skills and no fallback. Would I would want in writing that me making that content is okay? I think, but that might be because it's I'm a lawyer yeah. and I'm risk averse. But I. I don't see how you can put yourself in the position where someone else can turn off your income stream like that. I just yeah. don't understand it. I mean, it's it's ultimately multifactorial because the sort of more cynical reality might well be that you know if you're a an electronic arts right quite a big company also mm. scumbags, but they may well be the kind of company who says you know what we've had enough of this content creation you know you guys are making money. Um, on YouTube and Twitch um, without us getting a cut. The issue with that, I guess, is that Twitch and YouTube do, in fact, make a lot of money off of people making content like this. And I wonder... And they're owned by Amazon and Google, respectively. And if both Google and Amazon decide to no longer do anything with EA, you've just tanked your own games company. <laughs> so I wonder if that is where the inflection point is. Yeah. Between Twitch and YouTube and game devs. Yeah, who holds the power, right? <laughs> I think that's a really difficult question. I suspect YouTube... You Google and Amazon, right? They've got a... Like Amazon's the one that sells you the game, and Google's the one that just runs the world. So. Sure. I think, I think you know, YouTube cannot be propped up by video game content. It just can't. There's not enough of it. Twitch... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I don't have the stats. I don't, I don't think... Percentage of it, yeah. I don't think YouTube is reliant on Let's Plays. Twitch, on the other hand, Twitch is reliant on video games, one hundred percent. It it just is. So I don't know who owns who holds that balance of power, especially because you can stream on YouTube now, and you can stream on Discord, Vimeo, all of these things. So I don't. I, I honestly don't know where that's going to land. I could see a company like EA saying, if you want to stream our content, that's fine. You can't monetize our content unless you're part of the EA streamer program, which will get you all sorts of tangential benefits. And then yeah. they have their hooks into streamers. I can see that happening. Yeah. 
but I don't. No, I agree. I agree. I, I, so I've just Googled it. So YouTube, um, it's about 15% of all content is video game related. Oh, wow. That's a lot higher than I thought it was. That's a lot of money. <laughs> I was I was expecting that 6%. 15% uh, is Because we forget that you know, people like PewDiePie, who used to be the biggest YouTubers, like video game people, right? That's true. That's true. Although it's always not the same as... It's, it's, always, it's always been quite confusing to me that people talk about, oh, the biggest YouTuber is that Mr. Beast. But then you're forgetting people like Beyonce, who I'm sure has more. Yeah, I, you've got you've got a, a a YouTuber has to be a person who creates content for a YouTube as their main job, rather than just like the yeah. Super Bowl video. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, so I'll be bringing this back. It's it's a really interesting debate. Um, it's an it's an area of law that, as with all things, law is, is it's ongoing. It's organic. It grows. Yeah. Um, things get settled and decided in court. And so, yeah, things like the OGL 1.2, I think, uh, should really have been, in my opinion, a wake-up call to the community at large that some of the things we take for granted, we maybe shouldn't, or at least we should have a sort of sense of introspection to say, "Uh, you know what, there are corporate arguments here that we have to take into account. Mm -hmm. And, And taking all that into account, I can still be angry. I'm not saying people aren't allowed to be angry. You know, if someone takes my toys away, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to say that people's emotional responses aren't valid because you felt people felt anger when this happened, and that that I'm not going to n- deny that feeling. But it comes back to the homework, exactly as you said, the homework that I set in the Hogwarts Legacy episode. Go away and make the case for the other side first in in good faith. Exactly. Otherwise, it just devolves into me. You know, calling you an idiot for not liking Ant Man. What well, exactly? Uh, it's objectively true. Sure. But I guess I have to honor the fact that your emotional system is fucked. Yeah, thank you. Wait, what? <laughs> Just like Ant Man already. Fuck. <laughs> Never. How dare you? I really watched Ant Man <laughs> recently. Uh, and? Yeah, no. Yeah, solid meh. Solid meh. Solid, solid meh. Right. Um, having promised to discuss something quite different for the majority of the episode. Yeah, um, I think we're going to need to rethink this episode's minutes. title. <laughs> well, divert, well, we haven't made up a title yet, to be honest. Which also <laughs> reminds me, I feel we should stop numbering our episodes in the intro. It gives us much more flexibility. I think that's right. Um, but that's a separate thing altogether. Um, a peek behind the curtain, if you will. But the biggest question in the sort of original title of this episode, it might not be the title that's actually on screen for you. Do tabletop RPGs need Dungeons and Dragons? Yes, and also no. So. Okay, you're going to drag this one out, I see. No, I'm not. I can, I can do this. Go on. Do this quickly. <laughs> Can you? That the seems industry, unlikely. The industry is niche enough that in order to attract new gamers, it needs a recognizable jumping in point, which is a space currently occupied by D&D. If D&D dies, tabletop role-playing games as a hobby die unless another game is able to move into that space. And currently, no game is able to do that. 
And anyone who's about to pick up their pen, well, not their pen, their keyboard, and write Pathfinder 2E can fuck off, because no, it can't. Pathfinder is too small and too niche and too complicated, and it's not a metonym for the industry. So, having done a very cursory Google, uh, based on Roll20, which is an online yep. hub playing um, TTRPGs, there, this is from 2021, and I've got no idea how reliable it is, but I'm just going to roll with it. Um, so, six companies have 80% of the games being played on Roll20, uh, and 53% is D&D 5th edition. So is that 53% of all games on Roll20? That's how I'm interpreting. 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons. So the remaining, what was the what was the statistic? 80%? Yeah, 80% of games are all from like 6. The remaining 27% is going to so be... The one that's probably like Pathfinder that might Pi- be... Yeah, Paizo, FFG, uh, Cubicle 6 probably... Then whoever makes Shadowrun, uh, and and then a couple, then someone else. I don't know who. Whoever makes yeah. Cthulhu, I think that's it. Anyway, but the, the, yes, fifty three percent being fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons is small. That doesn't yeah, include the people. It is still the majority share. Like, that's it's, not it's, it's not. It's not just a plurality. That is an absolute majority playing yeah. one edition of Dungeons and Dragons. It's like me saying that Monopoly is, you know, the game that people will play fifty percent of the time. Like it's absurd. Yeah, it's that's an insane market concentration, and this is on Roll Twenty. If you're playing your tabletop role playing games on Roll Twenty, you're already quite deep in the hobby. Yes, that's yeah, I yeah. think. So, and not to mention that something like Pathfinder is just. D&D. <laughs> sure, so the other the other side of the argument is Pathfinder doesn't exist without D&D because it's just D&D. Uh, which is absolutely true. None of the Roll20 systems exist because D&D invented Roll20. Uh, sorry, that's confusing. Not Roll20. The D20. None of the D20 systems yeah, yeah, would yeah, exist. Yeah. Not Roll20. Uh, made, made us use all funky dice. Yes, exactly. But I think so. I I fundamentally think that Dungeons and Dragons is the tentpole that holds up the entire industry. If you say to someone, "Shall we play a tabletop role-playing game?" they're going to look at you funny and leave the room. If you say, "Shall we play Dungeons and Dragons?" they'll call you a nerd before they leave the room. And I think that distinction is really important. Yeah, I I think I agree with you. <laughs> we should do an episode as well on on tabletop RPGs that are not just Dungeons and Dragons that we like. Sure, I mean, a very short list, but well, there, there, there there are some very good ones out there. But what I think is really interesting is, so you've played it, Fantasy Flight Games made a Star Wars role playing game. Yeah, that should be the biggest one. Just in terms of market penetration of Star Wars as a concept, and it's, it's sort of the fact that it branches beyond nerddom into the wider sort of social culture, that should be the entry point for role playing games. It just should, or 
the the one ring lord of the rings system either of them yeah. and they're not it's dungeons and dragons it, but it's a really interesting point isn't it and, and i might get vilified for this um especially given what our audience is like but so for example when i was playing edge of the empire the star wars um system mm-hmm. insofar that i objectively might not have thought this is just dnd and star wars and it's hard to get away from that in some ways mm-hmm. even in my own mindset Whenever people ask me, for example, oh, what are you up to tonight? I'd be like, oh, I'm going to play, um, you know, Star Wars D&D. Yeah, that is so much easier and more understandable for your, your average person who's not a, a tabletop RPG aficionado than saying, I'm going to play a Star Wars-themed tabletop RPG. Yeah, you say, I'm playing D&D, even if you're not. Exactly. And I'm that, playing D&D, it's actually Lord of the Rings, or I'm playing yeah. D&D, it's actually Star Wars. Um, because D&D has become, for some reason synonymous with tabletop rpg that that's what i mean when i kept saying it's a met keep saying it's a metonym so that's yeah. a it, it, wall street is the best example of this wall street is a metonym for the american financial services industry D occupies that same space for tabletop role-playing games it's not just synonymous it's the the part that exemplifies the whole. And not only that, allegedly, I haven't seen it, but there is allegedly market research out there that shows that Dungeons and Dragons is one of the most recognizable brands in the world, full stop. Not tabletop role playing game, not hobby, just brand in general. I mean, it is, it really is. I, I always get the impression that certainly in the United States, or perhaps North America, maybe it's fair to say, I don't, I don't want to draw a distinction between Canada and the US, mm-hmm. but I, I always get the impression that the, the majority of people have at least heard of D&D. I, I get the sense in Europe that's maybe a lower percentage. I don't know if that's actually true. Or so I, th- I, think, I think that's what this market research shows. And I think it shows that for varying levels, it's true in the entire weird world. So the Western educated, industrialized, I forget what the R&D stand for and weird. You look like an idiot now. Um, something developed world. What does the R stand for? Help me. No. Nope. Oh. In the entire weed world. <laughs> Good save. Just edit out the last bit. Um. That that D D and D is is just it's not a household name, but you know, community didn't have to explain what D and D is before they did the D and D episode. Nor did the Big Bang Theory. Nor did the It Crowd. People just they might not know exactly what it is, but they understand it enough that it can be part of the general conversation. Yeah, and and. Pathfinder is not that, and I would argue will never be that. Black Flag, which is Cobalt Press's hilariously named answer to the OGL changes, won't be that. MCDMC edition won't be that. Because I think D&D is too entrenched in that position. I think you're right. and I also feel the sort of overall moniker or acronym, Tabletop RPG, it's just such a mouthful, isn't it? It, it? It's one of those high barriers to entry, I feel sometimes. You, 
could you say a board game, but that offends some other people? But at least, I think at least I, that's, it's the right ballpark, right? It's people coming yeah. together and having fun playing a game. So <laughs> the mechanics just sort of change. I think I think board game. I'm, this isn't an original thought, but I think board game actually is almost the best way to describe tabletop role playing games to 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 yeah. players. Board board game crossed with make believe. Exactly. I think you're just going to say, I'm going to go play a board game. Someone asks you which one, and you say, oh, fine. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there's so many board games that I've never heard of, but at least it's not as intimidating as someone saying, I'm playing a tabletop role playing game. It's an element of gatekeeping, I think. It might not be deliberate gatekeeping, but it's certainly an element of gatekeeping. It is. But then I I guess the counter argument to that is. well, it's probably no longer that that true, given how pervasive it is in in our society. But you know, this this idea that oh, if you play Dungeons and Dragons, you are kind of nerdy, um, and I'm, I'm quite glad that that seems to be dying a bit of a death. That kind of rhetoric, but there probably is still a lot of that. I think it's I think it's going away, particularly with the rise of like video games and and things like that. So it's not that people don't think. That playing D and D is nerdy. I think they just don't care as much. Yeah. Well, now now you can say things like I'm playing IRL Baldur's Gate. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. To be fair, you could say that in the nineties as well. It's <laughs> true. Yeah. You were just playing AD and D rather than Fifth uh, Edition. I think if, if people haven't heard of TGRPGs, then I think it'll be a challenge um, to make sure they've heard of Baldur's Gate. <laughs> Unlikely to have heard of Icewind Dale, the 1998 video game or whatever it was. <laughs> so I guess that, that that's why that's why my answer was yes, but also no. I think in the world as it currently exists, the tabletop role-playing game industry needs Dungeons and Dragons. Without it, it would die. Yeah. Because most people who are playing tabletop role-playing games other than D&D started on D&D. And if they didn't, the people who introduced them did. It's everyone's. Yeah. If you trace everyone back, everyone starts at some. Everyone in. No, sorry. At least one person in every group started on D and D. As I was saying, I actually didn't start on D, which is weird because I always considered myself as going to play D and D, and then I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Did you start on FFG Star Wars? Um. Yeah. Probably. Or well, no, five rings, uh, which which didn't last very long. Well, we finished. That is actually a very cool system. Quite different, I thought. Yes, yes, it is. Um, but the, I, I guess the fact is that the the core element of what these games share, which is the the role playing, yes, you know, tell your own story style thing. That that is such a unifying mechanic throughout all tabletop RPGs that I think people, I, I feel, there's maybe more of a case. To be made as, as sloppy as it is to just refer to these things as D and D, you know, as, as you say, use the use that metonym because there is a pervasive mechanic throughout. Well, but then the counter argument that is that any game that uses any kind of die, you're going to call Yahtzee. You know, that's no. So <laughs> I, you, I, th- I think you've identified the wrong unifying mechanic. So you're right that all of the ones that you've played use dice, but not all do. No, no, the unifying mechanic is is the is the role playing. That's why they're called RPGs. <laughs> It, yeah, I suppose it's that. Um, it's, there's plenty of systems that don't use any form of dice. Um, yeah, that's true. Or, or sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. So I guess we're 
we're coming to to a resolution. Uh, any any last? Yeah, I just thoughts? want to put you on the spot then. So sure. for any listeners out there who are not necessarily all that familiar with role playing games of any sort, what would you recommend that is out there that is not Dungeons and Dragons? Can I pick a different version of Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> Convince me. So. Dungeons and Dragons is on its fifth edition. They're consulting on one D and D, which is just sixth edition in another box. I've never tried it, but I've been reliably informed by people who have that the most approachable version of Dungeons and Dragons is fourth edition, which I really want to try at some point. It's it's just the best introductory version of D and D for new players, apparently. If I'm not allowed any D and D at all, then my next question would be, well, what genre do you want to play in? Because if you want to play, you know, like, like Five Rings style feudal Japan. All right, I'm just what... going to come up to you and say, I want to play a role playing game. What's your first answer? And Is I'm not D&D? allowed to say any D and D. If I can, yeah. Vampire the Masquerade, because I really want to play it. You know what? I'll go with that. I actually also really want to play that. So there you go. That's my that's my that's my answer. If I but, if I'm not allowed D and D, I'm going weird and I want to play Vampire the Masquerade. But you are going to just say D and D, right? People come to you and say if people come and say I want to play a, play a tabletop role play game, I'm going to start with okay. I can run a starter adventure of Dungeons and Dragons this evening. Okay, I love how well, you caught yourself from nearly saying Dungeons and Dragons instead of RPG there. So I guess we rest our collective cases. Yeah, I can, but 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 I can, I can't, and part of that is because I'm a D and D DM, so I can pull an adventure like that out of my arse. But also, it's just people understand all the tropes and things like that, which is hugely valuable when introducing new players. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's an episode there, right, on just how pervasive Tolkien's world building has has been yes uh, yes for another, another day definitely so I, I think we can end there with the idea that D perhaps might be holds the crown if uh, i if i can just throw your throw your question back at you what's the system that you want to try that's not D&D. I, I honestly, uh, I, I couldn't tell you any names, but I'd love to try role-playing games that effectively don't that use anything other than like a piece of pen and a paper. A piece of pen and a paper. Nice. nice. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> what do you mean? What? What do you mean by use anything other than a pen and a piece of pen? No, as, in, as in just... It, no, no dice, no, nothing like that. No complicated rules. Uh, okay. Sort of like, yeah. Okay. Creative collective adventure that essentially just gets written onto a page or something like that. Maybe use cars or something. I don't know. I'm sure there's, there's RPGs out there that use cars. There are, there are, there are ones out there that use, use, use a deck of cards. Aces and eights, I think, is one. Uh, they're often Western-themed for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. Uh, but I think that's, that's perhaps an... In, in, Important point is, is sort of pick the setting that you want this yeah. to be in, and ultimately, 
you know, I'm a big fan of the fantasy setting, and and it doesn't really get much more fantasy than D and D, right? No, exactly. Mind you, I'd be I'd be very up for a, a, the Lord of the Rings one at some point. Yeah, I want to I want to crack that book open and run it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's still very much a a space that needs to be explored uh, for me. So okay, we we'll go for there. But I think we can we can safely wrap up there. We didn't spend too much time. You did that. We did do. It. And no, I think we've done all right. memory, That R stands for rich. Which, you know, rich. Not Thank you. Oh <laughs> my god. I love that of all the things that's the one you forget. You know, the one thing that defines the West. Yeah, no fair. So on that bombshell, Sean being a Muppet. I'd just like to thank you all for listening to this episode of Expertise is Overrated. No doubt we've said some things that were either objectively wrong or downright offensive. As ever, feel free to let us know, rate the podcast, and leave us a comment. Or drop us an email at expertiseisoverrated at gmail.com. Tweet us at zero expertise. Check out our website, expertiseisoverrated.podbean.com. Or come join us on our Discord server. If you're lucky, we might just argue with you in one of our upcoming episodes. If you're really lucky... We might call you an idiot. Come back next time for some more absolute nonsense.